All right, we are on part eight of our series. It's a nine-week series. We'll finish it up next week. We're talking about miracles, different categories of miracles, because God is not inactive. God is not passive. God is not asleep. God is active in our world, but we need to understand the sort of things that God does because people can get confused because they know that God can do anything, right? But God doesn't do just anything. So if I pray for the ability to fly like Superman, am I going to be able to get that prayer answered? If I just have enough faith, I'll be able to fly like Superman. Absolutely not. It's not going to happen. So, I mean, God could do that. I have no reason to believe that he will. It would be awesome. But I need to know what does God have a history of doing repeatedly miracles in our world so that we can believe God for those types of things. And so we've been covering categories of miracles. So far, we've talked about God intervening in a person's life, bringing them from one path and putting them on another. That's being born again. We talked about the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the emphasis on the heart miracle, the heart change, the heart transplant, going from bitter and angry and depressed and anxious to filled with joy and peace and patience and the fruits of the Spirit. We talked about God communicating to us through dreams, visions, and the still small voice. We talked about dealing with the demonic, physical healing, being saved from circumstances, and last week, provision miracles. We've been talking about all kinds of different things, and this week, we're going to have all kinds of fun talking about judgment miracles. You you ready for that? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, boy. All right. So, uh, let's pray, because we need to pray, and uh, we'll talk about judgment miracles this morning. So, Heavenly Father, we honor you and we worship you and we trust you. Lord, I know you've got a good plan for this time right now. And so, Father, I pray that you would just reach down and touch each one of us with what we need. We're all dealing with different things. We're all fighting different battles. We all need a different touch from you. And so I pray by your Spirit you would touch each one of us with what we need so that we can take a step forward in believing you more and serving you better. So bless our time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. There are lots of judgment miracles in the scriptures. Noah's flood is a great example. People think of it as a cute thing to decorate your children's room with, but it was the destruction of all of humanity on the planet except for eight people. Very, very harsh, harsh situation. There was, um, you know, the Old Testament, you got Sodom and Gomorrah. You've got uh, King David doing a census and thousands and thousands of people were killed in judgment from God. Lots and lots of judgment miracles in the Old Testament. The plague of the firstborn. The wrath of God is a fairly common Old Testament theme. Would you, would you go with me on that? All right. How about in the New Testament? This, we're we're going to have fun today. It'll be fun. But... It's that kind of fun. You know what I mean? Uh, We're going to work through some stuff. How about the New Testament? Well, let's go to Acts. We're going to read, starting in Acts chapter 4, about a couple. The man's name was Ananias. The wife's name was Sapphira. Let's see what we got here. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias... 
How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. In church. Okay. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped his body, and carried him out and buried him. You think it's hard being an usher in today's world. I probably should have let that one go. I don't know. (laughs) About three hours later, uh, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Okay. Why did that happen? Was it because they didn't give all of the money that they had? uh, No, that wasn't it. They could have kept it. They didn't need to sell the land. They were lying about what they were doing in a very crucial time at the startup of the church. And it was bringing in deceit and lies into that special move of God and judgment came upon them. Then let's go to Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 6. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they made a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, that'd be son of Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. That's good. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. You will never stop perverting. Will you never stop perverting the ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand." When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Okay, so we've got people dropping dead. We've got people being struck blind. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm giving a few extra examples this week just to make sure that we can settle this and understand what's going on. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 27. This is Paul talking to the church in Corinth about how they do communion. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, that is really without recognizing the congregation. So their uh, communion services were a combination of our type of communion services and a potluck. So it was a full meal that they all did together in reverence to the Lord. And they were were excluding people, and it was just kind of a mess. And so uh, 
that's what he's talking about, is how they're going about doing these agape feasts. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, because you're being disrespectful to one another during the communion time, that some of you are sick, some of you are weak, and some of you are dead. Who would have thought that would be in there? All right, let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So here we see God sending a delusion to people so that they'll believe lies and be condemned. Anybody thinking to themselves, what happened to our friendly Jesus? You know, isn't this... What's going on? So we want to learn some things. Okay, judgment miracles are things that happen. We have lots of examples of them, Old Testament, New Testament. Let's understand what's going on here and try to make some progress. So here's a few things as we develop into where I want to go. We need to understand that God is not a wimpy enabler, right? God is not a wimpy enabler. Uh, God's not a pushover. Uh, Do you remember hell? God is not a pushover. Things will be dealt with. Now, he's very patient, which can confuse people into thinking he's a wimpy enabler. But he's very, very strong, but very, very patient. We need to realize that this topic that we're talking about today is a big, big topic and is greatly neglected in our culture, so we are not going to come to a full understanding in the next 21 minutes. But let's see where we can get. I do think we can make some progress. So I want us to learn two things. Usually I'm trying to get us to learn one thing. We're going to try to learn two. All right? So you've got to listen fast. <laughs> listen, listen fast. We're going to learn two things. So here are the two things. The first thing we need to learn and understand is you are not a minister of God's wrath. Okay? You are not personally a minister of God's wrath. The second thing we want to learn today is to be able to distinguish between God's discipline and God's wrath. To know the difference and to know the motivation behind discipline versus wrath. So first, you are not a minister of God's wrath. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, then you are an ambassador for Christ and a minister of reconciliation between people and God. You are not a minister of God's wrath. You are a minister of reconciliation between people and God. You are one to share what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that our sins are forgiven in Christ, and that whoever we are, whatever we've done, wherever we're from, we can be reconciled with God and become His children, receive everlasting life and the presence of God to help us through this life here. 
We are the ones that minister reconciliation to God. We do not minister God's wrath. Now you may feel like ministering God's wrath. Have you ever felt like that? Well, you'd be in good company. Let's go to Luke chapter 9. Starting in verse 51, James and John had the same feeling. So Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's on his way to Jerusalem to face all this stuff. You know, Palm Sunday hasn't happened yet, but they're, they're on their way. At the, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. So the people wouldn't let Jesus stay in their town. Who do you think you are going to Jerusalem? You can't stay here. You're not welcome here. And so James and John got upset. Verse 54. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? They wanted to be ministers of wrath. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Is that it? Yeah. Anyway, Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. They went somewhere else. Jesus was saying, no, let's not call down fire. Uh, Do you understand what the cross is all about? We're going to do that instead. They wanted to be ministers of the wrath of God, but they didn't get to be. That's not who we are. We're ministers of reconciliation between people and God. How do we handle difficult circumstances? Romans 12, starting in verse 17, is how we handle difficult circumstances. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So when there is discrimination, when there is evil, when when there's the darkness of this world, we are not to return darkness and evil and discrimination. We are to return good for evil. We are to overcome evil with good. Now what is this heaps burning coals thing? Right, it's important to be able to discuss that because uh, that sounds rather cruel. Why would somebody heap burning coals on someone's head? All right, this is in the Jewish tradition, the Jewish culture. They were very symbolic, had lots of fancy things that they did. And one of the things that was symbolic in Jewish culture was uh, the refining process of fire. Fire was a purifier. Fire was a refining thing. Like, uh, you know, take the coal, touch my lips. You know, I'm a man of unclean lips. Take the coal, touch my lips. That's symbolizing the refining and the purifying of fire. And so they used to have this symbolic headpiece that was a headpiece that symbolized repentance. And they would wear it and put coals in it saying, I was wrong 
I need to be cleansed. It was my fault. I'm sorry. And they would wear this headpiece with the coals in it. And that's what this is talking about. Heaping burning coals on their head. Meaning they will come to a place of repentance. I've been cruel to you. You've been nice to me. I've been cruel to you. You've been nice to me. I've been cruel to you. You've been nice to me. And now I start to feel like maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. And I shouldn't be being cruel to you. And that's heaping burning coals on their head. And that's how we respond to darkness. And that's how we minister reconciliation to this world. So thing number one, you are not a minister of God's wrath. You are a minister of reconciliation between God and people. Got that? Amen. All right, we're making some progress. Second one's a little trickier. Distinguish between God's discipline and God's wrath. If you are a Christian, you are saved from God's wrath. Amen? If you are a believer and you've put yourself under the blood of Christ, you are saved from the wrath of God. But you are not saved from the discipline of God. You are not saved from the pruning process. If you remember... John 15, where Jesus talks about the vine and the branches and how the branches that bear no fruit are cut off and the branches that do bear fruit are pruned so that they will be more fruitful. We are saved from God's wrath, but we are not saved from God's discipline. In fact, God disciplines those He loves, which we see in Hebrews chapter 12. Let's take a look at Hebrews 12, starting in verse 2. Going to verse 11. I love verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For who for the joy who set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, had sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness." No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God disciplines His children. God disciplines those He loves. Why? So that they can get better. So that they can make progress. God is like a coach. You ever, I, I'm a sports guy. Have you ever had a coach that got the most out of you? That coach was probably hard on you, right? Strong with you. And you went somewhere you didn't think you could even go. 
because you had a strong coach that believed you could do more than what you thought you could do and pushed you to that level and you got there. Were you thankful to get there? Absolutely. At the time, might you think, oh, I hate that guy. (laughs) But in the long run, that coach brings out the most in the person and God wants to bring the most out in us. He doesn't want to leave us in weakness. He doesn't want to leave us being overcome and run over by this world. He wants to bring us into a place of strength. God disciplines us because He likes us. He loves us and He wants the best for us. And He wants us to be productive for His kingdom. And here's the problem. The problem is that if you want to be loved guy, if you, I'm sorry, the problem is if you want to be loved by God, but you can't handle discipline, you are in a very difficult spot. Because love and discipline go together. God disciplines those He loves. So if you want to be loved by God, but you can't handle discipline, you're going to be, you're, you're going to be torn. You're going to be confused. You're going to be hurt when you shouldn't be hurt. God disciplines those He loves because He sees more potential in you than you see in yourself. So, what's the difference between discipline and wrath? This can be difficult to talk about because the terms aren't used very specifically. You know what I mean? So we're going to look at two different concepts, but people are going to use different words in both categories. Like the word punishment, I think, is a great one. That can be absolute wrath, punishment, or it can be discipline, punishment, right? It can mean completely different things. So let's try to get an idea of what we're talking about, the difference between wrath and discipline. Discipline is uh, what God does. I've got to find it in my notes here. Make sure I say it right. Okay. There we go. Discipline may be painful, but it is designed to make you better, and it's motivated out of love. That's discipline. Wrath is a sentence of guilt to destroy or to inflict pain. And it's not out of love. And it doesn't make you better. That's why we're saved from God's wrath. Noah's flood did not benefit the people who were killed in the flood. It killed the people who were killed in the flood. Wrath is to destroy. Discipline is to build up, to strengthen. If we get those two confused, we're in a world of hurt. So, parents, you need to be parents who discipline your children, but not parents who drop wrath on your kids. You know the difference. When you're seeing behaviors that need to change in your kids, and so you come up with a plan to help them overcome that, that's one thing. But when you just can't take it anymore, so you go off, that's wrath. That's not out of love. It's not to help the person get better. It's just you freaking out on your kids. That's wrath. Discipline is completely different from wrath. Right? You catching that? It's an important distinction. 
that if I'm looking at my kids and I want them to get better, so I have a plan that may be unpleasant for them in the short term, but in the long term will produce a harvest of righteousness, then I'm going to do that out of love, even if it creates some relational tension because I know that they need to be better and I want them better because I love them. But if I just freak out on them because I'm at the end of my rope and I can't take it anymore, that's wrath and it's not to help them and it's not out of love. So don't pretend that it is. Wrath does damage. So as parents, be parents of discipline, not parents of wrath. The problem is is that people can misinterpret God's discipline as wrath and think that God hates them, not realizing that discipline is from love. They can think that God hates them or they can think that God has abandoned them. But the truth is that it's showing God's love. Discipline shows love. So, it said endure hardship as discipline. Which to me means don't waste the pain. If you're going to go through a hardship, you might as well learn the lessons. Right? Don't be, don't be in that place where you're unwilling to look at the situation and make the adjustments. Even if it's not God doing it. You know, a lot of the things that happen are just harsh things, and we should have known better, but we didn't. It wasn't God inflicting anything. It's just us making mistakes. There's lots of pain with that. Learn the lesson. Don't waste the pain. Let's get better. Otherwise, we're going to live it again. So how do we tell the difference between God's wrath the evil that we go through in this life, even satanic attacks, versus God's discipline. Now, my father-in-law helped me understand the difference between the condemnation that comes from the enemy versus the discipline of God. The condemnation that comes from the enemy is vague and you can't fix it. And it will say things like, you're a rotten person. You're not worth having around. And there's nothing you can do about it. You're just a rotten person, not worth having around. That's condemnation from Satan. You reject that. Say, no, I'm a child of God. I'm worth having around. I was created with a plan and a purpose. God made me because he wanted me here. And he's got an eternal plan for me. I'm worth having around or he wouldn't have made me. And you can reject that. But God will say things like, You shouldn't have done that. You should have done this, and you need to apologize to that person. And you feel that, but there's a specific thing you can do to fix it. And so then you fix it, and then it's done. And you move forward, and you make progress. In order to get a little bit better grasp on this, let's look at some of the ways that God disciplines us before we... Have some time for prayer up in the front. I've got four ways that God disciplines his children. The first way, you know, there's a a progression, a ratcheting up of God's discipline. The first way is the still small voice. It's your conscience. It's seeing the truth in the scriptures and going with that. It can be godly counsel. So, You've been doing something and all of a sudden you feel like, you know what, I better not be doing that anymore. That's God's discipline. You feel it. Listen to that. Because it gets stronger. 
Listen to the still small voice. Listen to your conscience. Conscience is a Bible word. It's co-knowing between your spirit and the Holy Spirit. When they're in agreement, you feel peace in your heart. When they're not in agreement, you feel that, uh, that uneasiness. And then when your heart is callous, then you don't feel it again. So you've got to be careful not to just have peace in your heart. Maybe you're callous enough to where you don't even care if you're doing the wrong thing. You've got, you got to read the Word. You've got to listen. You've got to, you've got to learn as this progression goes forward. But the first thing is that still small voice, our conscience, the Scriptures, godly counsel, those sorts of words that come into our life. There was a guy that stopped me about a year ago who said he had a prophecy for the church in Cloquet. I'm like, okay. You know, I'm Pastor Mike. I get sometimes odd people come up to me and say things, and I'm, I smile and that sort of thing and, and evaluate it for what it is. And this is what he said, and I think it's actually not just a weird guy, but th- there might be something to this. He said, God's going to do something special in Cloquet. And you need to warn people that if they don't get on board with it, they're going to be open to judgment. Okay. I like the first part. <laughs> God's going to do something special, and we're responsible to yield to that special thing. And if we refuse to do that, then we're open to judgment from God. Ananias and Sapphira, God was doing something special. They brought in ugliness and deceit, and they were judged. I do believe God is doing something special in Cloquet. We need to be open to it. We need to embrace what God wants to do, not stop it and wreck it and bring in evil and darkness. So God speaks. Then God allows natural consequences. God created this world. The natural consequences are part of His plan. God allows natural consequences so that we can learn. It gets our attention a little bit better than the still small voice. If we're ignoring that, there's natural consequences. Then God removes His hand. If you had that happen, I hate that. Where God removes his hand and all of a sudden you're walking through life alone instead of with God. You can feel the difference. And then the fourth step is God will intervene with painful circumstances. Don't get that far because it's confusing. There's sort of a, a, a fuzzy time where uh, discipline starts to feel like wrath and gets worse. Don't get that far. Listen to the still small voice and obey quickly. Then you don't have to deal with the more painful things down the road. That's how God speaks with us. That's how he disciplines us. Still assume, though, when you're going through hardships, because it might be an attack from the devil. You don't want to think that, okay, this is God trying to help me. It's the devil trying to hurt me. Rebuke the devil. It might be just the junk that happens in this world. Well, there's still lessons you can learn when it's junk in this world. But if it's the discipline of God, then understand discipline comes because God loves you. And He wants you to get better. I'm going to invite the prayer team up. We're going to close here in just a minute. Our closing scripture, 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. In a moment, we'll have some prayer time up in the front. Uh, We're going to pray together as a group again, and then we'll have uh, personal prayer time. People can come up to the prayer teams. 1 John 4, 16 through 18 says this, And we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. 
Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. So if we're following Christ now, in this world we are like Christ. And so then we get this verse. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Punishment there is used in the sense of wrath. Fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So we, you know, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But then perfect love, the love God has for us, perfect love, when we dwell in Christ's love, casts out fear because we know we are set free from the wrath of God. We are set free from that type of punishment. We're still open to discipline, but that's because of the love of God. So perfect love casts out fear. God's love for us is perfect. Don't reject that love. Embrace it. I said earlier that as Christians, we are ministers of reconciliation between God and man. If you are someone that has strayed from the Lord or who has never said, yes, Lord, I'm with you. I'm in. Right now is your time. Say in your heart, yes, Lord, I will follow you. Ask for forgiveness. You're brought into his family. You become my brother or sister. And we're going to fight this fight together. And if you're a believer, you need to be open to the discipline of the Lord so that you can learn and get better. Don't you want to get better? But we also understand that perfect love casts out fear. We don't need to live in fear of the wrath of God because the blood of Christ is sufficient for us. That we have the love of God upon us. We have God's discipline, but we are free from wrath so we can not be afraid but dwell in the love of God. So let's pray as a, glo- as a group. Let's believe to make progress in this area. And then I'll invite people up for personal prayer up in the front. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us. And we're mature enough to understand that your love means discipline and pruning. So we open ourselves up to you that you may make us stronger, that you may make us better, you may make us more productive, more effective for your kingdom. Lord, help us to hear quickly and obey quickly so that you don't have to speak louder. But Lord, let us yield to your still small voice of your spirit. And Lord, for for those who need to reconnect with you or connect with you for the first time, I pray the courage to be able to make that statement in their hearts. Yes, Lord, I'm with you. I will live for you. We thank you, Lord, for your forgiving power that you take our past and you cover it by your blood and you make us worthy to be your children. Lord, help us to live that life worthy of the calling. Help us to stand on the solid rock and to have love in our hearts that overflows into this whole world. So Lord, we ask you to bless us, give us strength, help us to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.